So we call this path of practice insight meditation. And you may be wondering, after sitting for three days, going on four days, well, okay, what's, where are they? What, where's the insight? Where's the insight part of this path? And so tonight I want to talk about insight and how it operates in this journey we're on, uh, what it is, why it's useful, etc. As you might guess, insight is cultivated through the practice of mindfulness, what we have been teaching you. And on, while we're on retreat, insights can occur on many different levels. Sometimes we'll have insights into uh, life issues that we're having, health issues, psychological issues, relational issues, family issues, uh, issues into your your body, your all kinds of all kinds of insights, and that's all very good. But the Buddha was talk, was pointing to a, a more particular kind of insight that he said is liberating. He was pointing towards a liberating insight, which is an insight into what are called the three characteristics of existence or the three marks of existence, meaning that every moment of our existence is colored by these three things, the noticing of which is liberating, the noticing of which frees us. And so this is what I want to talk to you about tonight. The three characteristics, what are they? Quite simply, the truth of change, constant change, the truth of the suffering that comes with grasping and clinging, and the truth of no self. This is what I am referring to by liberating insight. In the dictionary, insight is defined like this. The capacity to discern the true nature of a situation. An elucidating glimpse. Liberate, in the dictionary, means to set free as from oppression, confinement, or control. So by putting these together, liberating insight then becomes an illuminating, penetrating seeing, which frees us from some kind of oppression, confinement, or control. A liberating insight, we could say, is a shift in perception, sometimes profound, sometimes subtle, which affects how we actually view things. And in that process, we become, we, we experience more freedom. We feel less oppressed in some way, we feel less confined, and we see more clearly. So insights are said to arise in the conducive conditions of a retreat, such as this one. But they are not under our control. We can't say, okay, I'm, I've been practicing for three days, now I'm ready for my liberating insight. 
and make an appointment with ourselves for maybe, let's see, what time tomorrow would you like your liberating insight? Would you like it before breakfast or after breakfast? We can't exactly do that. We don't know when a liberating insight is going to come. Sometimes they come as sudden and, and, and uh, sort of surprising. Sometimes they happen very, very slowly. Suzuki Roshi, the Zen master, said insight is like walking in the fog. When you walk in the fog for, for an hour or so, say it's winter and you have a coat on and you're walking in the fog and, and you don't really feel like you're, you're getting wet, but when you come inside, you realize you're soaked through. And sometimes insight is like that. It kind of penetrates us in a slow, subtle way and we don't realize it until we're back maybe in our lives and seeing something in a completely different way and we think, oh my, here it is, there's this insight that's been working on me all this time. So on retreat, retreats are, are, are meant to create the conditions which are conducive to helping you go deeper in your practice and helping you to see more clearly. So this cultivation of moment-to-moment attention that we've been encouraging, the development of focus, of concentration, of gathering your, your attention and being here, being in silence for these days, slowing down, the, the reduction of external stimulation. By now you're, you're kind of getting used to this slower, quieter, world. And when you go back out there, you might be surprised at, whoo, there's a lot going on. (laughs) Learning, in the way that we instruct you, learning how to attend to the present experience, not with judgment, not with resistance, but with openness, with patience, with curiosity. You know how we've been encouraging you? And we encourage all this not just once, but over and over and over and over again. So this is what is working on you. This is what is kind of helping your... uh, Well, Lama Surya Das says, enlightenment is an accident. And retreats make us more accident-prone. So this is why these conditions, they're, they're kind of working on us. They're kind of helping us to loosen up, soften up, so that we are more likely to, to have a, a, a liberating insight. And as you well know, at first it's not obvious that mindfulness just bringing your attention back to the present over and over and noticing your experience in a moment-to-moment way, it's not obvious at all that this has the power to free us. It seems so ordinary. It seems so much like manual labor at times, you know, coming back to the breath. It's like, hey. But there's something at work that's very powerful. 
because every moment of mindfulness is a deep reconditioning of our mind's usual tendency. Our mind's usual tendency to be grasping onto what we like, trying to get rid of what we don't like, or just getting lost in fantasy. Every moment of mindfulness, it is said, we are free of those tendencies. So every moment of mindfulness is like another drop of water in the bucket. Little by little, the bucket gets filled, drip, drip, drip. So that is the power of mindfulness. It's subtle, but it has a cumulative effect. When I started my practice, I think I mentioned the other night, back in the, in the 70s, um, I was first drawn to more exotic expressions of the, the Buddha Dharma. So I found myself in a Tibetan, uh, studying with some Tibetan lamas for a while. I thought they were just so amazing, you know, and they had all these beautiful tankas and they had chanting and it was always something going on. It was all very, it was like amazing. And then I went to the Zen, uh, into the Zen world for a while, and that was also amazing because I love the ritual and the bowing and the chanting and the mystery of it all. It was very exotic to me. And I was convinced in going to these kinds of, of, of um, teachings that there were going to be there were going to be secret teachings because I didn't understand a thing. I mean, I I loved all the ritual, but I had no idea what it was about, and nobody really explained it. So I thought, okay, well, someday somebody's going to come and you know tap me on the shoulder, and they're going to say, "Now's the time for your secret teachings," and they're going to take me in the back room, and finally I'll get to know what's going on here. They'll tell me the truth. And it was shrouded in mystery and secrecy, and I, I guess I kind of loved all that because I made up this big story about it. But then I came to realize over some years of practice that the teachings are not secret. If they are, they are self-secret. We keep them secret from ourselves by our inability to see the truth of what is unfolding right here, right now, in this very moment of our ordinary experience. The truth, everything we could possibly want to know about the truth is right here, right now, but we don't see it. When I first came um, to the Vipassana tradition, I heard a quote from Krishnamurti who said, it is the truth which liberates, not our efforts to be free. And I thought that sounded really good. Again, it was like some kind of truth, you know, like a secret teaching and a truth that would come and hit me over the head. And So I thought, that was wonderful, but I still kept looking for it outside of my experience, in a book, in a Dharma talk, in a meeting with a teacher, that somebody would, it would just grab me and it would be revealed. Never happened. So it took a long time to really get that the truth that Krishnamurti was talking about was 
actually appearing in my very ordinary moment-to-moment experience just like it is appearing in yours and something even more amazing to me was that I didn't need to change my experience one iota. It wasn't about changing my experience. It was about seeing the truth of my experience. So now I'll mention this this thing called the stereogram. Again, back in the 80s, there was these... This thing called the stereogram was kind of um, popular. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Some of you. It was, you'd go to a party and, and you'd see on the wall kind of a poster with many colored dots on it. It mostly looked like just a bunch of colored dots, all different colors and very full of dots, just full, full of dots. And, and somebody would say to you, Oh, you got to do this. This is really great. And they'd come, they'd stand you in front of this thing and they'd say, Do you see the tiger there and the elephant? And over there, there's a bunch of, you know, cranes and the river is coming through. And you'd think, I don't see anything. I I just see a bunch of dots, you know. So then they would coach you and they would say, Well, you got to like really relax, like really relax. You know, and you got to kind of close your eyes a little bit and settle back and look. Just maybe a little wine would help, you know. And eventually, suddenly, out of the blue, this whole scene would appear. And there it was. There was the tiger and the elephant and the cranes. And it was like, oh my goodness, there it is. And it was sort of 3D. And you couldn't miss it. Well, that's kind of the way insight is what we have seen as just a bunch of dots suddenly becomes something quite significant. (coughs) And nothing changed on the paper. It was my perception. So mindfulness actually changes the way we perceive. It allows us to see what we don't ordinarily notice, what we overlook, It allows us also to know things directly without having to think about them. The more we notice in a careful way our ordinary experience, a pain in the body, an emotion appearing in the mind, or the arising and vanishing of thoughts, the closer we come to seeing the truth of what the Buddha called the three marks of existence which are appearing in every moment. The truth of ceaseless change, anicca, it's the Pali word for change, impermanence. Anatta, the truth of the universal and impersonal nature of all experience. It's not me, it's not mine, it doesn't belong to to us. And dukkha, The truth that when we try to stop, change, or get identified with what arises, we suffer. The truth that Howie was talking about last night. Suffering and the cause of suffering. The liberating insight is the end because we see the futility of clinging, of resisting, the potential of being with things as they are, 
as the way to liberate ourselves. So in the continuity of mindfulness, we have a better chance of accessing and experiencing the truth of the three characteristics. And in the seeing of it, it becomes real. It's not just an idea. I mean, I think everybody, you go downtown anywhere and you say to somebody on the street, you know, um, excuse me, do you think that things change? And it's, yeah, they'd probably look at you strangely, but they'd probably agree that, yeah, things change. But that's still kind of over there, you know? It's when you see the truth of change directly in your own experience that it be, starts to take on a whole other level of reality for you. So mindfulness, when it becomes a well-worn rut in our neural pathways, when we have cultivated, you could say, the habit of mindfulness, and it is something that we have learned to uh, value and practice in an ongoing way, it gives us a different point of view on reality. And this point of view, we could say, the point of view of mindfulness is very particular. It is a point of view characterized by clarity, objectivity, relies on here and now, so it has an immediacy to it. It is alive. It requires being present. It requires uh, openness and an allowing of things to be as they are. brings to us a sense of contentment and belonging, like we belong here, we don't belong anywhere else. Just here. Here is enough. That's what we discover. It is a point of view which sees things as they are. In contrast... I want to talk about another point of view. The point of view that walked in the door with you when you came here is the point of view of the personality or what we could sometimes say the small self, the, the self that is, is quite different from the point of view of mindfulness. The small self sees things from the point of view of what it likes and what it doesn't like. The small self is an expert you could say, on what it likes and what it knows, what it likes and what it doesn't like. It's very clear about that. And that's what it goes through life pursuing. It feels quite separate and alone, quite anxious in that aloneness. It, it spends a lot of tra- time trying to feel safe and not alone. It is mostly, it mostly defines itself by its past. The sense of identity comes from, from the past. We know who we are now because of the past. And it hopes for a better future. 
It wants things very much to be different than they are. And it spends a lot of time trying to improve and get it right. It actually doesn't see much the point of being present. Why? Unless there's a great deal of pleasure happening or, in, or unless there's some kind of danger to avoid, what's the point of being present? So these are two points of view. The point of view of mindfulness and the point of view of the separate small self. They see things quite differently. So this is something for you to reflect on. I imagine that as you have been here on retreat, you've had many moments of the small self operating and reflecting, and you've had some moments of mindfulness showing you another point of view on the same territory, the same emotion, the same pain, the same sound, the same whatever. And many of you have reported that in interviews. One person was saying today how the cleaning the bathroom job was very repugnant to her at the beginning of the retreat, and now she's seeing it quite differently. Mindfulness allows that. So tonight I want to look at these three characteristics a little more closely and look at each of them through the eyes of the separate small self and through the eyes of mindfulness. The first of the three characteristics, I think I'll start with dukkha. This is what Howie was speaking about last night, this quality of unsatisfactoriness or suffering. And we could say there are two aspects of suffering. We could say a lot more about it, but I'm just to keep it simple tonight, I'm going to talk about two aspects of suffering. The first being the torments of body and mind. The fact that we have bodies that, you know, have illness, have uncomfortable pains that are not, we can't make them like we want them to be, and they get old and they get sick and then they die. So there's a sense of this unreliability and uh, unsatisfactory quality of embodied existence. In the mind, there are many painful and unpleasant mental states which can arise of grief and fear and dread and despair and depression and anxiety and worry and you know the drill. All that can can come and we can feel quite tormented by all that. So looking at that, the fact of it, from the point of view of the small self, suffering is usually reacted to with aversion or fear and interpreted as meaning something is wrong. Either somebody else is to blame or there's something wrong with me. Something I, maybe I can fix it. Something I must improve or change. So it puts an enormous pressure on, on us in that, in that small self sense. 
when we get identified with our suffering and we think it's, oh, that's me, that's who I am, we make all kinds of conclusions about ourselves, like I'm, I'm failing, I never do it right, I'm not, I can't do this, I never will do it, I've always failed, and you know, the stories that we tell ourselves. So that's a point of view on our experience. That's an interpretation of our experience. That's an attitude that we add to what is already a difficult situation. From the point of view of mindfulness, the torments of body and mind are temporary manifestations of the human condition. They are universal experiences. Everyone has some experience of difficulty, of suffering, of pain in body and mind. It is a universal shared experience. These experiences arise and pass for every human being. They are impermanent. Sometimes they're spoken about like the weather. We all know what it is like to be in different kinds of weather. On this retreat, we've had quite a range of (laughs) winter to summer. We all know heat, cold, wet, dry. And each mind state that arises has its own nature. Just like the weather can be known, we can know all these different mind states which arise. We can look at anger and ask ourselves, what is its nature? We can look at fear when it arises and ask, what is its nature? Greed, what is its nature? Joy, generosity, peace. We can know these as phenomena that each have their own nature, their own story, their own texture, their own uh, lived experience. The content of our stories may be different, but we as humans share. And once you know fear in yourself or greed in yourself, you know what it is like in every other human being. It is a impersonal uh, phenomena. On the night of his awakening, the Buddha was visited by all these hindrances of mind and body. And what did he do in response? He, it is said he was sitting and all the you know, obstacles came to, to try to dissuade him from his, his uh, commitment to, to be free to awaken. So when anger arose, when lust arose, when fear arose, he said, and there's beautiful depictions of this in the suttas, he, he said, it was said he could turn to each of those and say, hello, fear. Hello, anger. Hello, I know you. We have met many times before. I have heard your story over and over again. I am no longer fooled by you. I don't need to be taken in by you. I don't need to believe you anymore. You are impermanent arisings, not me, not mine. It doesn't mean that I'm a bad person if I'm having this experience. 
I know you, I've seen you, I've tasted you, I've met you. And so he remained free from their influence. So that's one aspect of suffering. The second aspect of suffering which the Buddha talked about is the unreliability and unpredictability of changing conditions. The Buddha gave a teaching on what is called the worldly winds, how in our lives in the world we, we fluctuate between pleasure and pain, success and failure, gain and loss, and pride and shame. These arise together, and sometimes we feel one side, sometimes we feel the other, and we just keep getting buffeted around and blown around by these things. We know things will change, but not in what direction. We never know for sure how things are going to turn out. And so we feel very vulnerable to the uncontrollability of conditions. To the personal self, the small self, this quality of unpredictability and unreliability is very hard to accept. And so attempts to control, to figure out, to plan for all contingencies are predominant. The separate self lives with terrible insecurity, fear, and vulnerability in the midst of unpredictable, changing conditions. We certainly see this all over our world, perhaps even more since 9-11. Many years ago, uh, about 20 years ago now, I was living in Berkeley during the Berkeley fire, and it was quite devastating. 3,000 homes were burned. My home was not burned, but we went out one morning. The fire was still raging, but we went out one morning to stand up on a hill to look down, and we could see a number of the houses that had been burned. And we were standing there when there were other neighbors there and other people there, and and I, and I started talking to a man, and he said, see that house? And he pointed to a house where there were these steel rods coming up from the ashes of the house. There were these steel rods, maybe six or seven of them still standing. And he said, that those rods were meant to save my house from an earthquake. So no matter how much we try, we we are still subject to this unpredictable, unreliable nature of change. From the point of view of mindfulness, changing conditions are like waves on the ocean. They're part of the nature of the ocean. Mindful awareness has no investment in how things turn out. Like how we mentioned and I mentioned, awareness is sometimes likened to a mirror. A mirror has no opinion about what is being shown to it. Or like the, sometimes it's, it's also likened to like the space space, like the space in this room. The space in this room doesn't have an opinion about what goes on in this room. It simply makes space for whatever occurs. Awareness is also like that. It makes space 
for whatever occurs in our hearts and minds without an opinion, without a preference. It simply reflects, it simply shows us what is there. So there's this little phrase, mirror-like wisdom. There's wisdom in just seeing how it is without an opinion. Okay, so that is dukkha. The next characteristic is that of anatta. Anatta. No self, what is called no self or not self. So the question is posed in different ways. I'm, I'm going to pose it like this. Is there a locatable self? When you look inside, you're here, and you look inside yourself, where is yourself? Where could you locate? You, you know you're here, but where is what we could call the self? If I wanted to show you myself, where would I find it? In my pinky, in my brain, in my toes, in my... Where would it be? So there's a lot of analysis done in the Buddhist tradition about looking for the self and not finding it. It's not locatable. It doesn't mean that we're not here. It just means there is no entity somewhere located deep within the organism that is running and controlling what is occurring. And this takes some reflection and some inquiry for each of us to begin to understand. Um, Time magazine, you know, they're doing all this neuroscientist uh, exploration now of the brain. So, of course, they have been looking in the brain to see if they could find the place where this this locus of control and, uh, you know, somebody in there running things could be found, and they have not found it. So there was a Time magazine article a couple of years ago that says, it concluded after much, you know, describing all the research, they said, um, despite our every instinct to the contrary, consciousness is not some entity deep inside the brain that corresponds to self, some kernel of awareness that runs the show. They couldn't find it. After more than a century of looking for it, that's a long time, (laughs) over a hundred years of looking for the self in the brain, Brain researchers have long since concluded that there is no conceivable place for such a self to be located in the physical brain, and it simply does not exist. End of story. Well, that's helpful. So I'd like to explore with you. Let's look at our breath. You've been watching your breath now for some time. And we can see that this breathing is occurring, often all by itself. It doesn't require you to be aware of it in order to happen, does it? It breathes itself. 
and it breathes, it's been breathing itself ever since you were born, which is a good thing. There is, we could say, no one making it happen. There's no one making it happen. It is breathing according to laws and conditions of the physical organism or something more mysterious we don't really know. In the same way, we can look at all the senses. We can look at seeing. We open our eyes and the world appears. Seeing occurs. Is there someone making it happen? Do you have to say to yourself, okay, eyes open, take in the light, see the colors? No. It happens all by itself. There's no one directing or controlling any of it. So who is seeing? Who is seeing? Seeing is seeing. We can say the same with tasting or hearing. Hearing. Who is hearing? Who is the hearer? Is there someone directing or controlling your hearing? Is there someone special required to see, to taste, to breathe, to hear, to feel, to sense? Let me read you something about this body of ours. Little known factoids about the body. You probably don't know this about your body. You might be surprised what it's doing while you're sitting here. The body replaces with a new skeleton every seven years. The body grows new skin once a month. The body replaces new eyebrows every three to five months. The body replaces a new head of hair every two to five years, if you're lucky. <laughs> the body makes a new, lev- a new liver every six weeks. The body makes new stomach lining every five days. The body gives birth to 100 billion red cells every day. Every breath we inhale billions of atoms that end up as heart cells, kidney cells, and brain cells. 50,000 of the cells in your body will die and be replaced with new cells all while you listen to this sentence. So, the body is doing all this without you even knowing about it. Who's in charge of this? And if you think you are your body, which body are you talking about? The one you had last month or the one you have now? (laughs) Pretty mysterious, isn't it? This physical organism has a life going on that you doesn't even you don't even know about. Lucky for you. So we see that on the physical in the physical organism that there are many processes happening all by themselves according to their own laws and conditions coming together. Now the same applies to our thinking and our emotions. But somehow we take our thinking and our emotions to be more personal. 
our thinking, it's my thinking. It's, it's about me after all. So it must be mine. We assume ownership, my thoughts, my feelings. So everyone hears, everyone breathes, but no one else thinks my thoughts and feels my feelings. Our thoughts and feelings seem very personal. They seem to be ours. But I'd like to look at this more closely with you. For example, our thinking. How personal is our thinking? So let's get back to the basics. What language do you think in? Let's hear. I'd like to hear what, see what languages are here. Yeah. Huh? Hebrew. Hebrew. English. French. French. Spanish. Spanish. Spanglish. Interesting, isn't it? What language we think in is usually the language we were given as a child. And it got in there very deeply. If we were raised in another country, say India, we would be thinking in Hindi or Tamil or Parsi. Those are some of the main languages in India. But most of us, not all of us, but most of us learn to think in English. In fact, most, most of us can only think in English. If someone were to say to you to think in Parsi, you probably wouldn't have too many thoughts. <laughs> we can all only think in the language and in the words that we were given, that we learned. And some of us have very big vocabularies, so that means we, we will have thoughts that include a larger range of words. Others of us aren't, so have such a large uh, repertoire of words. So if I don't know the meaning of the word profligate, which I'm not sure that I do know, um, <laughs> We're not going to be thinking. We're not going to be having too many thoughts using that word, are we? So we were given language and we were given words to use. And those are the words that we use when we think. We also learned what to think about, what it is important to think about. If I had been born, oh, I don't know, in a peasant family in Ladakh, I would probably be having very many different thoughts than I have being raised in the suburb of New York City in, you know, in an urban, semi-urban environment with, you know, all kinds of things. If I had been born in, uh, if I had been born in uh, Fiji or in uh, uh, Iceland, I would be very influenced by that upbringing, by that culture. If I had been born as an African-American living in Harlem, I would be having different kinds of beliefs and thoughts about my situation. So we're very influenced by the, by the cultures and the conditions in which we are raised the values. So in short, most of our thinking, I'm, the point I'm making is that we are highly influenced by others 
And it is not, our thoughts are not as uniquely personal as we like to imagine, nor as original or as original. How many of you in the past 24 hours have had a highly original thought? Please raise your hand. Anybody? I, let me guess. I imagine that most of you have been thinking about, hmm, what could it be? The retreat, how it's going, and the food, and the weather, and the meditation, and what you like, and what you don't like. And that's what we do. And as how we said last night, we tend to repeat many of the thoughts. 94% of our thoughts or something are repeats from the day before. Not highly original. Not highly original. So thoughts sort of have a life of their own. But there are times when we can exert some control over our thinking, when we have to plan a trip or make a to-do list or think about what to do about something. We, we have some control over our thinking, but even then it's a little unpredictable. Um, you've been learning the loving-kindness meditation and the repetition of phrases, one of which is, may I be free from harm. So I was doing this practice, metta practice, for a long period on a retreat, repeating these phrases, and one of them being, may I be free from harm, may I be free from harm, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of repetitions. I suddenly heard, may I be free from Harry? (laughs) And I thought to myself, who is Harry? Where did that come from? I have no idea. May I be free from Harry? May I be free from Harry? So even when we are trying to control our thoughts, you know, they, they have a life of their own. So this is one view of anatta, that, that there is a process that is living through us, but that it is not owned by us. We cannot say it is me or mine. There is no one inside directing or controlling all of this. Now, from the point of view of the small self, our thoughts are pretty much who we are. We believe them. We believe what they tell us and especially about the conclusions they have about us, that we're good or we're no good or we're doing well or we're not doing well, we're failing or we're improving or we're to this or to that. And the repetition of these thoughts over and over and over again substantiates the illusion of someone whom these thoughts are referring to. Well, it must be me because these thoughts keep telling me this is who I am. From the point of view of this small self, the idea of no self makes no sense whatsoever. What do you mean? I'm here. It makes no sense to the mind which knows what it wants and what it doesn't want and is completely invested in how things turn out. 
The idea of no self may sound cold, uncaring, lonely, disconnected, or austere. Some kind of weird Buddhist thing. It may seem so absurd as to be humorous. Stephen Butterfield wrote this. When he was old, I tried to introduce him to... Oh, he's talking about his father. He said, when he was old, I tried to introduce him to the Buddhist doctrine of emptiness. I thought it would ease any anxiety he might be having about the imminence of death. Ultimately, I began, you never were. Maybe not, he said, peering over the rim of his glasses, but I made a hell of a splash where I should have been. (laughs) It makes no sense. Tell somebody you never were. What do you mean? Or we may just remain unconvinced. Ramana Maharshi said we are like the person who gets on the train with their luggage and stands in the aisle walking the whole way, thinking that that's what will get them to their next to the de- their destination. We are on the train, but we're still walking. From the point of view of mindful awareness, the body and mind appear as a mind stream of karmic conditions appearing for a while as a momentary fiction or a dream. Momentarily appearing, but without any enduring substance or reality. The Buddha said, thus shall you think of this fleeting world a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, an echo, a rainbow, a phantom, or a dream. These things appear, but they are not as solid and enduring as we imagine ourselves to be. So that is anatta. The third characteristic is that of anicca, the truth of ceaseless change. From the point of view of the small self, we want to hold on, make things last in a way that conforms to our desires. So we try to control events and outcomes. Instead of surrendering to the flow of change, we try to direct our experience according to the outcome that we wish. From the point of view of mindful awareness, how does change appear? We see the futility of trying to hold on, of stopping the waves on the ocean, of trying to grasp the ungraspable. We see the suffering of trying to hold on and resist change. And at times, we see there is more at work than what I want and what I don't want. There's an Ojibwe saying, sometimes I go about pitying myself and all the while I'm being carried by great winds across the sky. In the space of 
mindfulness, we can rest at ease, noticing change, allowing change, being present with change, seeing all the comings and goings, beginnings and endings of all phenomena as a teaching, as a pointer to the way things really are. Perhaps we can be like the Rishikesh saint whose practice is to stand by a waterfall from morning to night. And at the end of the day, he bows to the waterfall and says, well done, well done. What would it be like to bow at the end of our day to all the changes we have observed in our body and in our mind and say, well done, well done. So these are meant, these are offered as uh, some of what you will reflect on as you practice, some of what will help you in your practice to let go, to open, to turn towards this immense, mysterious life that we are part of, not with fear, but with curiosity, to turn towards, to open, to inquire, to see that there are ways of seeing ourselves and our situation that are indeed healing and liberating. Insight into these three marks has a healing effect, has a liberating effect on us. Some of these effects we can notice as feeling more space in the mind and heart, more a sense of greater ease, it's easier to be present, we feel more alive, more connected, we feel like we are here, we belong here. We may notice that we rely less on thinking about things and more on uh, the knowing of the direct experience of things. Huang Po gives us this advice. He says, the foolish reject what they see, not what they think. The wise reject what they think, not what they see. So we come to rely more on mindfulness as a way of knowing things than on thinking about or analyzing or trying to figure out in our minds. Here are some other descriptions which have been used to describe the effect of liberating insight. These come from traditional texts. They say, insight is like finding an oasis in the desert as if one had been traveling for 1,000 miles and finally found a rest stop. Like taking a healing medicine and feeling well again. Like cool moonlight which soothes and pacifies the restless, tormented mind and body. Like a flash of lightning in a dark and stormy sky like the warmth of the sun breaking through the clouds. 
also a lot of words, all hopefully pointing you back to investigating your moment-to-moment experience with this understanding that the more you look, the more you will see. So I will close with a poem by Jennifer Wellwood. called Unconditional. Willing to experience aloneness, I discover connection everywhere. Turning to face my fear, I meet the warrior who lives within. Opening to my loss, I gain the embrace of the universe. Surrendering into emptiness, I find fullness without end. Each condition I flee from pursues me. Each condition I welcome transforms me and becomes itself transformed. Okay, so let's just sit together for a minute. So we have a, we have a, we have about thirty minutes for walking, and um, we'll sit together at, again at nine. And I'd like to teach you a, 